Good morning, everyone. This should be fun. Um, I've titled the talk today, Hope in the Midst of Chaos. The chaos does not refer to what usually happens when I pick up a mic, by the way. <laughs> what we're doing is looking at Advent through a slightly different lens, and we're looking at the fact today that the hope we have in the Advent story, because God doesn't just choose shiny, important people. He seems to actually go out of his way to choose forgotten, ignored people. So that's, that's what we're digging into today. Um, and I thought we'd start with a traditional image of the nativity scene and a helpful reflection on that image that I found on Tinterweb, the source of all information. It's great to see Mary on keyboards and Joseph on vocals for a change. <laughs> I know, it's silly, but it made me laugh. <laughs> at, at this point, I should probably introduce myself. I'm Phil. Um, not to be confused with Chris, who's the other tall fellow who hangs around. He's American and, well, I'm, I'm not. So there we go. So you can think of me as Cliff Richard to his Elvis. <laughs> exactly. I'm just a low-rent Elvis, that's all I am. There we go. Um, so I also happen to be Joel's dad. Normally I would say something embarrassing, but he's on the sound deck. So I won't. Instead I'll say, underneath all that hair, he's a nice lad, really. And he has to behave for the rest of the sermon. So to keep things fresh today, we're using a slightly unusual translation. I've picked the Berean Standard Bible, not because... It's anything special, it's just fairly new, and I thought it would be helpful to get a slightly newer translation. And also, to keep things fresh, we've got not just one, but two glamorous people doing the reading today. So if I could invite them to come up, and while they come up, I'll introduce to you Monika's answer to Sonny and Cher. <laughs> or perhaps, for the younger members in the audience, Beyonce and Jay-Z. <laughs> Paul and Debs. So we're going to read from Luke 2 and Matthew 2. Take it away. Okay, let's, I don't know. Um, let's read Luke 2 together. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her child to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds residing in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Just then, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a great multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After they had seen the child, they spread the message they had received about him, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, which was just as the angel had told them. And I've got Matthew 2, verse 1. Um, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east, arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the one who has been born to the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had assembled all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out, for out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. When, then, King Herod, then Herod called the Magi secretly and learned from them the exact time the star had appeared. And sending them to Bethlehem, he said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report to me so that I, I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with great delight. On coming home, sorry, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they withdrew to the country, to their country by another route. Excellent. Thank you both. Um, Before we dive in, a note of caution. Um, I much prefer exposition where you read the passage, you use the context of the passage to unpack it, and you go through verse by verse. Today, I'm afraid it's a bit more of a thematic sermon where you use the passage as a springboard. Or to put it another way, um, we're reacting to the passage in the same way that you react to and enjoy an artwork. So today, our job, in the words of Mr. Bean, is to sit and look at paintings. (laughs) Um, So I got the main conclusion for this talk a few months ago, and I thought, no, that's definitely wrong, and it definitely doesn't fit into Advent, so I sat on it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then in early October, Morag spoke. And quoting from her sermon at the beginning of October, obscurity or ordinariness is not a bad thing. Living out an everyday ordinary life is exactly where God meets us. In the everyday ordinary is where God's promises are fulfilled and where we hear his prophetic voice. She also in that sermon pointed forwards to the shepherds who were the particular example that I was uh, was thinking on and had been given. So that was enough confirmation for me. Uh, And then a few weeks later, Chris, the fine American Elvis at the back there, um, preached on a similar theme. The shepherds are the first evangelists, he said. Uh, This is not how people expect to hear of the dawn of a new kingdom. And these messengers and their message seem less than glorious. And then just last week, Morag again expanded on a similar theme in her helpful reflection on Anna in the temple. So I'm just going to pick up on this same theme, but bring it to a slightly different application at the end. Um, Let's deal with a couple of distractions, first of all. The manger, 
and the stable. Now, I very much enjoyed N.T. Wright's mini rant on this in his commentary. Unfortunately, I haven't got enough time to, uh, to read the fine man's words. Uh, all I'm going to pick out in the interest of time is the manger was important because the shepherds were told the baby you want is in a feeding trough. So it was just a sign. Um, and similarly, the stable probably wasn't a stable at all, and there might not even have been animals there, and there weren't any tea towels. So sorry for ruining all your nativity scenes. Uh, the word that's used and, uh, in the traditional translations uh, spoken as in uh, can actually mean a number of things, and the most likely explanation seems to be that they were living in the ground floor of a house where people usually stayed upstairs and they had animals downstairs. But as I said, there probably weren't animals there. Um, so what can we take from all this? Well, I think the obvious. The saviour of the world was placed in a feeding trough, and for the first few days of his life, he was staying in a part of the house where people didn't normally stay, animals did. It's hardly a majestic start to things, is it? Let's move on to look at the shepherds. They were the first witnesses. They were manual workers who slept outside and worked with animals. I would hazard a guess they probably smelt quite bad. Um, they were ignored, undervalued, and treated with suspicion. Uh, Leon Morris unpacked this a bit more and said because of their job, shepherds couldn't um, observe ceremonial law because they couldn't, uh, for example, do the ceremonial washing. Uh, if that weren't bad enough, they also were considered to be so unreliable they weren't allowed to give testimony in the law courts. So in short, they were a despised class of people. Um, I wonder if bringing this up to date, if we'd be willing to listen, if a homeless person came in and said, hey, I've seen a miracle and I want to tell you all about it. I know that's an imperfect metaphor, but at least it reflects some of the, the challenge to the religious elite at the time that the shepherds were by being the first witnesses. Um, interestingly, as Craig Evans wrote, if Luke did indeed view the shepherds as thieves, then we have both Jesus' birth and his death in the company of criminals. Certainly the shepherds were an unexpected source for the news, and presumably they were an encouragement to Mary and Joseph, because up until this time, it had really been their own secret. Well, them and the angel who told them. Um, and then we get to the, the angelic choir and the anthem, and there's a whole sermon in here, uh, which I'm not going to unpack, apologies. Um, all I'm going to do is comment in passing that the angels proclaim glory to God and peace and favor on earth to all people. Note, this is an army, this is a host um, that proclaims peace. Again, just reflecting that God's kingdom is different to earthly kingdoms. So at this point, the shepherds hurry off, presumably forgetting about their sheep, and they, they run off to try and find the baby in the feeding trough. We don't know who the others the shepherds were, sorry, the, the others that the shepherds told in verse 18, but we do know that they were amazed. The only other thing we know about the shepherds from these two passages is that they worshipped, they told others, and then they went back to work, presumably looking after the sheep again. Uh, they didn't start a new international ministry. They allowed God's kingdom to break in to their normal lives. They worshipped in the midst of it, and then they carried on. If we turn now to Matthew's account, we have the introduction of the magi, magi, who knows how to say it, I'm not a scholar, so I'm not going to pretend. Um, the word can mean magicians, astrologers, or astronomers, because, sorry, Joel, they meant roughly the same thing at that time. 
Um, wise men or experts in natural sciences, so they were the first scientists, or they were also experts in interpreting dreams, portents, and strange things generally. So they were highly educated, but they were not of the mainstream Jewish faith. Um, and note the blend of mysticism, direction from God, and assumption here. They saw the star, had some mystical beliefs about interpreting what the star meant, then went to the palace, because obviously that's where a king should be born. And it was actually Herod's uh, you know, experts, his advisors, who told them to go to Bethlehem. Um, and what was the star? Well, again, in the interest of keeping it short and moving to prayer ministry quickly, um, talk to me afterwards. I found some interesting ideas in some of the commentaries, but we're just going to move straight on. Um, what about the miraculous leading? Well, I think that's more relevant. I wonder if in this story we can, it might be a stretch, but I wonder if we can see God seeing the hunger in the hearts of people who are not uh, from the Jewish faith, but were seekers after truth. Uh, and he was gracious enough to lead them to himself, even by means of some of their slightly flawed beliefs in stars. Um, that, as I say, that's a stretch. Uh, it's not in a lot of commentaries, but I wonder if that's what we see. And certainly in verses 11 and 12, we see another example of God leading people who were not from the faith at the time. So from this, I think we can say that God speaks and uses people who might not yet be his followers. We should be slow to judge because God can use and speak to and through anyone. We should weigh what people say using the Bible as a guide, but we should allow God to be bigger than our expectations or preconceptions. And in verse 13, we see another example of God's miraculous intervention into this all-human story. Uh, Joseph is warned to flee to Egypt, and then by doing that, he actually fulfills the prophecy in Hosea. Um, and that's where we, we're going to stop in terms of the passage. But what can we say about Mary and Joseph, first of all, from these two passages? Well, they were poor, itinerant workers. They were strangers. They were incomers. They were immigrants. They lived in unglamorous places. They were hardly the religious elite. What about Jesus? Well, he was God, but he laid aside his kingly majesty and became a vulnerable, poor baby in poor surroundings. This means we have a God who cares and is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, not a God who's far off, judging from a high-level strategic view like some cosmic chief executive who just sees numbers instead of people. No, we have a God who's involved and he knows us intimately. As it says in Luke 12, he knows even the number of hairs on our head, and that can vary from Ian's head to mine. Um, and then, what about Jesus? Well, I think we see him as a homeless refugee with a bounty on his head from a paranoid dictator. That sounds a lot like an immigrant to me, seeking political asylum. So, looking at this passage was a challenge to me that maybe we should question the rhetoric that certain political parties have been putting out recently, or even some news outlets. Uh, God's promise appears to have always involved immigrants. And if we don't take that seriously, maybe we should now. So what does this mean for us? Well, hardly any characters in this story were the religious elite. We didn't see priests, teachers of the law, or, or anyone else important, really, apart from Zechariah, um, and then Herod, who was important, but didn't have a very good role, let's just say. Um, instead, we have shepherds, we have Gentile philosophers, we have poor migrant workers, and we have homeless refugees on the run from a despotic regime. 
So the kingdom of God now involves ordinary people, not just the priests while everyone else watches from a safe distance as it was before. And in Advent, we see a story of God meeting with and using ignored, forgotten, despised people. The encouragement I found in all this is that sometimes my view of ministry can be too small. The kingdom of God involves all parts of life. I'm going to quote from Morag's helpful sermon again. I feel like I should be doing something, fulfilling some sort of higher calling. It's a timely reminder for me. God does not need me in a temple or even the perfect place. He can find me in obscurity and drudgery, and he can transform the ordinary simply with his presence. Not every call of God will lead to Jerusalem. In the past, I've sometimes felt guilty, particularly when chatting with Christian friends about what I do. You know, I work for a technology company, basically. Uh, and I chat to some friends who, you know, are often going off on some exciting mission trip with some dynamic Christian group. However, in the jobs that I've had, I've met lots of people from a wide variety of backgrounds who perhaps wouldn't have been exposed to God's kingdom otherwise. And I've been able to work out and gradually make sense of the prayer that, that uh, Jesus prayed in John 17, that we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. This isn't to dismiss working for a church. As a trustee of this church, I'm very glad we've got staff members, otherwise we'd be in a bit of trouble. Um, but I wanted to share that even though I know all this stuff, it's still easy to get a warped view of life and ministry. And it's a good reminder to say God welcomes both types. And while thinking about all this, I saw a quote in a music documentary. Uh, I found it strangely relevant. Hopefully it helps at least a few of you. Stop thinking so much and concentrate. That's attributed to Jaco Pistorius. Now, I'm not suggesting Jaco as a spiritual mentor. He was a good musician, but an absolute mess in a lot of other ways. Um, if you want to know how he died, speak to Jesse afterwards. <laughs> Um, what I, I took from this is that what Jacko meant was when you're making music, you shouldn't just concentrate on the sheet of paper with dots on it. You should instead be concentrating on the musicians around you, the inversions they're using, the groove and the feel. Good music is much more than printed dots on a page. And I felt in the same way kingdom ministry is much more than just a few narrowly defined tasks or roles. It's about living in the groove and feel of the kingdom. So how does this apply to us today? Well, I've got three areas of application. First, for anyone here who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, the hope of the Advent story is that God chooses the invisible, the outcast, to be part of his kingdom. You don't have to be good enough, important enough, wise enough. You just have to be willing and accept it, and then you can become part of the story too. Secondly, for those who may be thinking about a change in direction. You might be a student coming to the end. Maybe you're looking for a new job. Maybe you're in the process of looking at changing where you live. Um, for most of us, ministry involves full-time employment, and you're called to be an ambassador in that office or research lab or school or wherever you end up. God's encouragement for you today might be to have a larger view of vocation and ministry. Full-time ministry is not just a job where your salary is paid for by the church. 
God pays all our salaries. He just uses different intermediaries. And third, there may be some here who are disillusioned and tired. You wonder what the point is. You feel like you're not having any significance. Your view of ministry is too small. Who you are in your daily routine does have significance. It's easy to look at others and think they do a more valuable job. Doctors saving lives, or working for a charity liberating those in slavery, or working in renewables helping to undo the damage to our planet, and so on. For a pessimist like me, with a more than a passing resemblance to Eeyore, um, it's tempting to see other people's roles as more important than mine. It's easy for me to say, for example, I just work for a multinational, making our shareholders richer. And that's true. But because I'm there, I can make decisions for the right reasons. I can care for my team. I can help to develop products that are accessible to all, regardless of cognitive or physical impairment. And perhaps even more importantly, my colleagues may not know God from a kick in the teeth, but they know me. And they can find out that it's possible to be a Christian and be genuine, even if that means being genuinely grumpy, stressed, tired, flippant, fun, or anywhere in between. Um, so I just um, want to pull out one key point here. You're not defined by what you do, but by who you are while you do it. It's something I've noticed about our culture. You know, when you're getting to know people, you introduce yourself, and then often you ask, so what do you do then? And you try and pigeonhole people. God doesn't define you by what you do, but by who you are while you do it. I sometimes feel like I'm no better than a sheep. I'm always seeing greener grass in the next field. Let us do what God has led us to right now, right here, without constantly looking over the fence and wondering what might have been. So just before I finish, I'd like to mention a chap from the 17th century, Nicholas Herman, who became known as Brother Lawrence. Um, he joined the army when he was a young lad because he was poor, but ended up in a priory in Paris. And because he had a very poor education, he had to remain a lay brother for the rest of his life and do menial tasks. Um, you know, he worked in the kitchen, he gathered firewood, he repaired sandals. However, he believed that what he was doing was for the glory of God. He didn't just bide his time waiting for a promotion to something more glorious. Um, and the irony is, in the midst of those so-called mundane jobs, other people heard about this guy and uh, noticed God's hand on his life. So they actually came to him for direction and guidance. And these conversations and letters then uh, became the basis for the book, The Practice of the Presence of God. So I'd like to finish with a quote from that book. We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love of God with which it is performed.